Very good. Okay, well, why don't we pray one more time? Oh, that sounds a bit loud. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to really just bless our time together, okay? Father, we we bow our hearts before you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We thank you that he is uh, the one who is keeping us and loving us. Lord, we thank you for his love. Thank you for his commitment to to us as his people. And we thank you, Father, for all of the rich blessings that we have by virtue of our union with him. We ask, God, that you would help us, therefore, to explore more deeply what it means to be in union with your son as we walk not in the old man, but according to the new man who's being recreated in the image of its creator. So help us to to put ourselves, um, to put on the Lord Jesus, to clothe ourselves, rather, with the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, and we ask that you would bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So. We have been talking about, uh, of course, practical theology. We've been talking about um, being imitators of God. And we talked about how uh, what this section that we're looking at here, which is, uh, let me just get rid of this. <clears throat> By the way, uh, we have hymnals coming. So we're going to be getting rid of the technology and we're going back to paper. So praise the Lord for that. But it'll be easy because... Now Brother Landon will just be able to put up a number up here for what hymn we're on. He doesn't have to cover my whole board with, you know, the title. Or whoever did that. I was going to say, it looked nice. So. <laughs> and that was Landon. <laughs> so one through. And I think the section that we're looking at now, all the way down to verse 21, remember? And so what we're looking at today is what I called public piety. Right, because he covered, if if you remember in chapter four, beginning of verse seventeen, he really began to cover virtue, character, and 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 that aspect of practical theology, which is our character, our virtue, right? But now we're going beyond just the personal application of character and virtue, and now to the public display of that virtue and character, namely how we interact with the world. Uh, how we interact with culture, those kinds of things, and how we interact with the sinful world that we live in. And so we looked at some of that. And really, it had to do with imitating God, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And that really is kind of sort of the the introduction, the prologue, if you would, to this whole section of how do we do this? How do we imitate God and and how do we walk like Christ? How do we become a fragrant aroma, so to speak, in our own lives? Well, number one, remember he looked we looked at immorality and we looked at uh immoral speech and immoral conduct and what Paul had to say about that, not even a hint among you should not even be named among you, for it's not fitting for saints and so he uh, negates the idea of tolerating. We went to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We talked about how the church was tolerating immorality, not willing to root it out, not willing to confront it. Uh, and then now we're coming to this section here, which is, uh, how did I put that last time? We said public conduct has to be devoid of immoral speech and immoral conduct. And now 
we come to this section, which I would say public conduct must be ready to abstain and expose darkness. Let's read from 6 to 14. Somebody want to read that for us? Robert, you want to read that? Verses 6 to 14. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Hmm. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do yeah. not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is mm. disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Mm. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that has become visible is light. For mm. this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Tremendous passage of scripture, right? Um, what do you guys notice is going on in this passage? What is his fundamental warning? How does the warning begin? What's he talking about? Deception. Yeah, deception. Uh, 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 c- consisting of what? Or even more empty words, right? So what, so the question is going to become is what is this, you know, oops, uh, what are these empty words? What is, how do we define that? What is he talking about? What do you think he means by these empty words, right? Let no one deceive you because, or he says, deceive you with empty words. And then watch, for because of these things, what things? The empty words? Is he talking about the empty words there? For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Is he talking about the empty words there? What's the reference? What's the, what's the antecedent in the text? You'd have to, you'd have to uh, discover that exegetically. What is he referring to there? Right? What's that? All the vices that he listed above, right? That's been the context. No immorality, no coarse jealousy, no filthiness, you know, all of these things. Impurity, no covetousness, no idolatry. All of these, these vice lists that he just got done uh, giving. Now he says, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now here's a question. Does he define explicitly the empty words? And if he does, where? Right? Does he tell you the empty words which are this? So how do we deduce what he means by the empty words? What's he talking about here? This, this is, this is very important here. Because what, what does he have in his crosshairs? Anyone? What's that? Liars? Well, you're not far from the truth. <laughs> Pardon the pun. What do you mean by liars? Who li- liars? What liars? Liars that would deceive you and twist the words of God. So now you've identified deceivers. Right? Is it safe to say that he is talking about deceivers? Right? People who are deceiving? Uh, so now we're talking about really the who of this deception, right? There are, there is a deceiver out there. There's a group of deceivers, right? Because somebody has to be attributed to this speech here. Who is he referring to? Well, someone is deceiving, right? With empty words. That's just the characteristic. But the fundamental fact is that there's deception going on and somebody's the source of it, right? So then the other question becomes this, guys. What? Right? So not only the who, but the what of this deception. 
Again, what is the empty words consist of? If we were to put it in a category, what is the category of this deception about? How would we define it? The promises of this world. You could even say falsehood. Falsehood. Because he he goes back and forth between verse 14. As a result, we are no longer... Now, now remember, keep in mind verses 3 to 5 and the context. Remember? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, and we define that as what? Verses 3 to 5. The vice list. So what do you think the deception has to do with? Pleasure? pleasure? Flesh that out a little bit more. What do you mean by pleasure? Yeah, I think that could be. Yeah, that could be. What's that? False professions? So now, what Robert has given us is that the empty words consist of the opposite of what Paul's been teaching here. Right? Because he's saying... No to this, no to that. This is not allowed, not even a hint. And then he gives us a caution. The caution is don't let anybody deceive you regarding these things. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So it makes sense that whoever these deceivers are, their deception is to contravene the teaching of the Apostle Paul. So what is the opposite of what Paul's teaching here? If Paul's saying no immorality, no this, no that, what is the essence of their deception? So would it be a liberal view of those, of those commandments that he gives? What do we call that, Brian? That's right. I didn't know your name was Brian, but that's okay. Hey, brother, we're all, we're all one in Christ. That's right. Yes. Antinomianism. Do I have room? Of course I have room. I even had room for a period. <laughs> the essence of this deception is antinomian, right? Because they're saying that these things do not, if we work in the reverse, these things do not incur the wrath of God. That these things are permissible. Uh, this is kind of something that is uh, kind of concurrent in Paul's ministry. Um, you see this in Paul's ministry with the Corinthians that we already talked about. Uh, let's see if we can go there, right? There was a slogan that the Corinthians were being told that was false, that was antinomian in spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for example. Right after saying basically the same thing that we're looking at in Ephesians in terms of, you know, no this, no that, none of this, none of that, right? He just got done talking about... Uh, that we don't engage in certain behaviors, fornication, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexual, thieves, you know, all of these things. You were this. And then look at verse 12. You guys there? First Corinthians six twelve. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And so what most technical commentaries have identified is that that phrase, all things are lawful, was a slogan that was going around the Corinthian church. That there were teachers there were deceivers going around with an antinomian slogan that said, everything is lawful for me, right? Because of, and, and, and how would they twist that? How would they get that in there like that? Well, you know, theories abound, but basically I think it has to do with, ironically, the doctrine of Christ. What they would say is that because we are positionally justified, right, then really um, there's nothing that can 
remove us from our standing before God. And so all things are lawful for me. As a Christian, I'm, I'm able to engage in anything I want, and I will not lose my standing before God. That's a possibility. That's probably the predominant idea, right? It has, it has something to do with justification. And that's why Paul really attacks that in Romans chapter 6. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? God forbid, right? The strongest negation in the Greek New Testament. Absolutely not. By no means. God forbid. In no way, right? He negates it completely as a possibility. So that's what's going on here. There is an antinomian spirit, so back to Ephesians, that is going around the church or possibly, and and or he's just wanting to uh, protect them and and certainly, what what is Ephesus? Where, where is Ephesus at? Where what part of the world is Ephesus in? Mm-hmm. Modern day Turkey, right? Ancient Asia Minor, right? Um, what province is that? Is is what's the predominant culture there? What's that? Roman? Yeah, it's Greco-Roman culture. So, what does that culture consist of? What is it? Licentiousness. Hardness? Oh, Artemis. Okay, what, what, who's Artemis? Okay, that's right. Artemis is a pagan Greek god, right? And so they, so Ephesians was inundated with paganism, right? And, and Ephesians had all of these mystery cults in the background. Matter of fact, if you read any commentary in the book of Ephesians, you will read about mystery cults that had this sort of, you know, mystical or hidden, almost Gnostic knowledge of arriving at true spirituality, true enlightenment through all these practices. And many of those practices were uh, immoral. Many of them were hedonistic, right? And so really what happens in paganism is either you have asceticism or hedonism. You know what I mean by that? Asceticism, which is what? What is asceticism? Yeah, it's a harsh treatment of the body. So like forcing yourself to fast, beating your, you know, your body, you know, cutting yourself, you know, that's ascetic practices. Or hedonism, which is a total disregard for the body. You just kind of do whatever you want to your body because your body's not really important. You see what I'm saying? So that, that they would engage in immorality and things like that. So the word mystery becomes a big deal in, um, in Ephesus. So, Musterion. So, not surprising, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Ephesians, what is one of his favorite words? Mystery. Because he's trying to solve, or he's trying to correct, right, the common cultural notion of what qualifies as a true mystery, right? And, and what is, and according to the Bible, when, when, when the Bible speaks of mystery, what is it, uh, what does that mean? When the Bible speaks of mystery, how does the Bible use the word mystery? Perfect. That's exactly what it is. It is. Did you get that from? Have you, were you spying on me while I was preparing for this? Yeah, that's right. Correct. It is in, in the new in New Testament, you know, language. It is something was concealed, but now has been revealed. 
You see what I'm saying? So it's not like this hidden secret knowledge that you have to go looking for and you, you can only achieve that, that understanding through some sort of mystical experience. No, 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 no. It, it is mysterious in the sense that God for a time concealed it, but now it has been clearly revealed, right? Proclaimed. It is no longer some hidden thing that only a few people have knowledge of. No. Um, maybe we can see this in the indicative part of the letter. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 is really the the crucial uh, passage on this. Oh, I don't know, beginning in verse 1, I suppose. For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there has been made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. So there's the hidden part, the concealing part, right? That's the hidden part of the mystery. As it has now been revealed, there's the revealing of the mystery to his holy apostles, the prophets in the spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the, and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power to me, the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light the administration of the mystery, which for ages was has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manif- the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So what are we being told here? We're being told here that the mystery was hidden in past ages, right? Past epics, but that there is also an administration of this mystery, verse 9. And that administration of the mystery is that God is revealing the mystery uh, little by little until we reach the climax of it in Christ. Really profound, prolific. It'll take our study in a totally different direction, but I still want to just touch on the fact that this antinomianism, where does it come from? Well, we got to understand the culture. The culture, because of its paganism, is very hedonistic, right? Um, it's 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 very lawless, and it doesn't want to abide by a moral code like what Paul is giving here. That's why Paul, in a lot of his letters, he has to he has to be explicit. He has to name the vices explicitly, right? Because he cannot assume that his Gentile readers really know what is forbidden for them. Right. I mean, that's what the the, uh, Jerusalem Council was all about, was let's let's identify what are the things that are forbidden for Gentiles that are coming into the church. And they were explicit. Right. No sexual morality. uh, What else? Uh, No eating of blood. You know, things like that to make it crystal clear uh, what it means to be in the new covenant as a Gentile. Um, Any questions or comments? Let's just keep going now. He says, so now understanding these empty words as antinomian by some group who can or has been actively deceiving or trying to deceive these Christians. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Look at that, right? The wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. That idea of wrath has already been introduced in the indicative part of the letter, right? You go back to chapter 2, he talks about that. Right, He says, we were dead in trespasses and sins, verse two, verse 1, verse 2, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that is working the spirit uh, of the spirit that is now working in the sense of disobedience. 
Where where am I at here? Uh, Verse 3. Among them too we also formerly lived in lusts of the flesh, indulging in desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So what is the indicative part of the letter telling us here? Right? In terms of judgment. Uh, Because in the imperative section, he is telling us that the wrath of God is coming. But in the indicative part, he's already told us that we have averted the wrath of God. So in order for us to listen to these deceptive words, we are going backwards, right? Because we have been delivered from the wrath of God. So if we're going back to an antinomian spirit, if we're going to go along with the deceivers, the false teachers, this deception, this heresy, right? What does this do? This contradicts our conversion. This goes back uh, to a pre-regenerate state, which he's trying to avoid. Uh, that's what's wrong with living in all of those things. Uh, have you ever talked to a professing Christian who is living in sin and trying to justify their sin, right? And then they want you to believe they're okay. They're just, you know, they just hit a rough spot right now. No. But what the Bible is saying is, no, is as long as you live like that, you're contradicting your, your conversion. Uh, what you're saying is that you have not been made alive by God. You know, so long as you persist in that sin, you are, you're contradicting, contradicting your own conversion. He says, therefore, do not be partakers. Now, I want us to notice a progression here. Watch this. He says, number one, don't be deceived. Right? So what is he saying now? Now he's saying, Therefore, do not be what? That's right. Don't partake, right? So, is what happened from here to here? What happened from there to there? Matter of fact, let's go step one, step two, step three, and let's see how many steps we've got. What happened between step one and step two? Yeah, you listen to the deception. So where does all antinomianism come from? It comes from subjecting yourself, right, to heresy, uh, subjecting yourself to false teaching, to listening to it, to giving heed to it. Boy, is there a theology of deception in the Bible? How far back does that go? (laughs) That's right. Genesis chapter 3, right, where Eve listened to the greatest heretic that ever walked the earth, or slithered on the earth, right? The devil. And if she would not have listened to him, if she would not have, uh, you know, imbibed the deception, then she would have never partaken. You see what I'm saying? Uh, But you see this progression in many other places. I mean, all over the place, you see that same progression. Can you guys think of any place where we have a progression like that? Well, hold on a second. Before we do that, Let's keep going just for a second. Don't be, so note, you know, if you obey the deception, then you become a partaker. Um, what does he mean by that? When he says partaker, um, what has happened now? Right? Now, now you're partaking of this yourself. Yeah, you're joining in. That's right. You're sharing in this. Um, you're being part with them, right, in this whole deception. 
you've decided to align yourself with this ideology, right? And then let's see, keep going here. Do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. So he's just reiterating what we just talked about in chapter 2, right? You were formerly darkness. That's what he said in chapter 2. According to the course of the world, you used to walk like this, but not anymore. And he says... um, Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That is what a child of the Lord does. And then he says this, do not participate. You see that? So now from deception to partaking to what? Participation. Right? So, so you can partake in a sense of the ideology. You can open yourself up to the deception, to the heresy. You can expose yourself, right, to it. And you can be affected just by listening to the heresy and being influenced by it. But, but, but what is he telling us now? That if you do not cut it off at step one, step two is inevitable and step two produces step three, right? Which is total participation. Now you are not just influenced by it and partaking of it, Maybe in, maybe secondhand. Maybe you're just kind of listening in on on something that you should not be. Some, you know, maybe maybe uh, you know a lot of weak evangelical moms sitting at home listening to Oprah Winfrey or something. I don't know, but you're listening. You're just imbibing the stuff, right? And then if you don't stop it there, then you partake. Question. I'm sorry. Somebody had a question over here. Oh, Keith. Yeah, amen. Absolutely. You see it. Yes, sir. You see the exact same steps in Psalm 1. Yeah. How blessed is the man, right? That's, my, that's in my notes next, yeah. You got it. Um, I can get you to read it. You full permission to steal my thunder. Go ahead. <laughs> How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So there's walking. There's walking, exactly. Right. Uh, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of sinners. So from walking to standing to sitting you see that so first you're kind of interact you're just kind of exposing yourself to it and then you stop to to you know to sort of partake of it and then you sit to participate in it you see what i'm saying same thing same progression uh maybe another another passage of scripture that has a similar progression uh in terms of sin how about james chapter one james chapter one Verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, be, cannot, cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. And then here's the progression. Each one is tempted when he is carried away. There's one. First you're carried off and you are enticed by your own lusts. Then when lust is conceived, then it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it gives birth to death. You see the same sorts of progressive, you know, uh, negative progression. Yes, sir. I was just thinking like a modern day example of like denominations who have kind of gone down that path of going all the way to the end and see like like some of the Methodist churches, like mm. United Methodist churches who mm-hmm. open themselves up to things such as like 
No question about it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Or it can start with mysticism. You know what I mean? Um, uh, there was a, uh, a Methodist church uh, in Southlake that they started introducing all this mysticism in it. And next thing you know, they have like labyrinths outside of their church, you know, where you walk a path and, you know, you try to get to the center of the force. How does it get there? Step one, right? They put the wrong pastor in there. <laughs> they had the wrong, they were listening to the wrong authors, right? They started dishing out bad theology to their people. And then next thing you know, what do the people do? They're following a trail in their parking lot, a labyrinth for spirituality, thinking that that's going to get them closer to God somehow. Incomprehensible, right? But how did they get there? It's because you you weren't fortified in the truth. See what I'm saying? And that's why I mean, in our church, I mean, we don't we don't have so many bells and whistles, but we have truth. We, at least we try. I mean, you go out to the bookstore. There's truth. By the way, you can't buy books before church. It's only after church. Okay. It's bad enough I make everybody late for announcements. Notice the progression: deception, partaking. And literally, to be part. That's something like what the Greek word is saying. What is this word in the Greek? What do you think it is? Fellowship. Koinonia. Soon koinonia, which means fellowship with. It speaks of an intimate association. Look, that's what happens is you go through deception to then partaking, willing to expose yourself to it. Uh, that is further than just being deceived. Now there's a willful, there's a willful action involved until at last there is a, there is a volitional fellowship with darkness, right? Incredible. Now, now do you see why Paul is warning this church? <laughs> why he's so adamant? So again, verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He says, but instead expose them. So this is interesting because we looked at the old man, right? The old man and the what? The new man. And what does the old man do? He does deeds of darkness, right? Deeds of darkness. What does the new man do? He exposes, exposes the darkness. You see what I'm saying? He exposes the darkness. Uh, not just refrain, but expose. Um, some people, you know, they struggle. They become Christians and they are surrounded by old acquaintances, old friends, old influences, and they find themselves just kind of going around that again and, and that kind of thing. And, and so what is, what is, that's the old man, right? The old man would, would tell you to go back under this, 
the new man is telling you what? No, rather expose the darkness. You know, don't go back and play footsies with your friends. Preach the gospel to them and tell them that you're a Christian now. Tell them that you're no longer going to live that way. Um, I, I promise you, they won't be calling you again. <laughs> you won't have that temptation anymore. Once you come and expose the darkness, right, they're probably not going to really want to be around the light. You know what I'm saying? That's the, that's the sure way proof to, to not give the flesh any opportunity to go back to something is to expose the darkness. Um, okay. Any other ways that we can do this? How does the church, let's just think fundamentally about this. How does the church expose the darkness? How do you expose the darkness? Because this is a, this is a safeguard, right? Polemics. You've been listening to too much JD Hall. <laughs> he explained, he does. That's right, he does. Church discipline, sure. It's a way to expose, that's right. What else? Yes, sir. Preaching, that's right. Preaching against sin. That's right. Um, you know, the fact that we're in a culture, right, that is just saturated in darkness. How do we expose the darkness there? Well, I would say through evangelism. You know what I mean? By preaching the gospel in a fallen, darkened culture. Um, wondering if we have enough. Okay, let's let's keep going here. He says, expose them. He says, for it is even disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. Look at that, right? For the Apostle Paul, we shouldn't even get into details about the deeds of darkness, right? No need to do that. Right? No, no need to get overly specific about what goes on in the world. We know what goes on in the world. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says madness is in the heart of man their whole life. It's utter insanity. That's what's going on in the world. It's utter insanity. We don't need a detailed, you know, description of it all the time, right? It's utterly disgraceful even to speak of those things. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light for everything that becomes visible is light. That is the principle that the children of light should walk in. Uh, light, exposing everything to the light because this is in keeping with the eschaton the end of the age everything will become exposed everything will come to light so we're supposed to live eschatologically even now right for this reason it says awake sleeper and arise from the dead and christ will shine on your hearts what's that talking about that's referring back to uh, isaiah right where isaiah is trying to awake the people out of their sinful slumber and now we're being told that we fit into this category uh, to awake. What, what is this calling to awake here? What is this? What is this talking about? Why is he calling us to do this? Anyone? Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on your heart. It's not so much salvation because I think they have salvation, right? But I think in the context of what's going on here. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the next verse, yes, ma'am. Go ahead, Jesse. What's that? Yeah, that's right. I, I think the big word that we're lacking here is discernment, right? Look at verse 15. Coming from the, uh, on the basis of that Old Testament quote, 
Therefore, you see this? Be careful how you walk. So this concept of awake, oh sleeper, is telling the believer, wake up. Uh, understand the times. Uh, recognize that there are real forces of darkness out there that you're going to have to combat in this world, right? And you better have discernment. And so walk carefully. So circumspection here, right? Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise. And so, or without wisdom, not as unwise men, but as wise. So what does public conduct do? Well, public piety also has to walk in wisdom and in fear. Look at this. Walk as wise men, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You see, that's why also in Christianity, there's a sense of urgency. And this is where we have to be honest with ourselves. Do we have a sense of urgency in our walk? Or is our walk just kind of in cruise control? Or just uh, just kind of going around, right? No, according to the Apostle Paul, our walk has to be characterized by, by a strict spiritual vigilance, where we are vigilant in our lives, spiritually speaking, uh, we don't just let things slip through the cracks in our walk with God, right? We have to take stock of everything. We have to constantly be watchful uh, because we have an adversary and we have a culture that is described as evil. It's almost like Paul, like how much more can I say? <laughs> Days are evil. Yes, sir. Be alert. Be alert. That's right. Doesn't uh, Peter say that? Uh, not on the <laughs> now what? Falling over a cliff? <laughs> Don't they have YouTube videos of that? People not being alert? <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. Where does Paul, what does Peter talk about that? Doesn't he talk about that? Peter talks about being uh, alert. What's that? First Peter. Th- no. Nice try. He threw something out there. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, if you guys find it, let me know. That's right. Yeah, yeah. What is that at? Verse chapter 5? Chapter 5, verse A. Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? Yeah, but what is this telling us right here? Not only do we have an evil adversary, but we're also in an evil environment, right? That's why, I mean, church really can't be Disneyland. We can't just come together to play games, right? We can't just come together for a sewing circle, for crying out loud. We're doing spiritual warfare as the people of God. Yes, ma'am. That's exactly what it's saying. Yeah, I like that, Marlene, because of the first part of verse 16. Making the most of your time. Um, Has anybody done any study in that verse? Anyone? Another translation? Somebody have have a different translation there? Everybody had the King James? Come on, where's where's Tony Calhoun? Where's the King James? Right? What What does King James say? Do you know? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> What's that? 
Uh huh. That's right. Making the best use of the time. And <clears throat> let's see here. Yeah, this Greek word is interesting because some would say that what it means is it literally means to buy something back, right? And I like that. That's where we get the concept of redeeming, right? Because <clears throat> as Christians, we know that we've lost time. 19 years of my life, I wasted, right? Not serving the Lord, not seeking the face of God, not uh, being productive in the kingdom of God. I wasted all that time, right? So as Christians, we should be dominated with the desire to redeem the time that we have wasted. You see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. <clears throat> What, what what verse is that? I'm sorry. Beautiful. Wonderful. I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't we say that about missionaries today? That they worked harder than many of us? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, these are people giving their entire life. I mean, I was just talking with a brother. He's getting ready to move to Jordan. Because, and from there, he's going to do missions all over the Middle East till he dies. I mean, that's it. That's the plan. <laughs> it's not my plan tomorrow. <laughs> my plan tomorrow is go get some Starbucks with Brian or something like that. He's moving to the Middle East to go do missions in harder countries where he will certainly die. <sighs> you know, it's like John Piper says, when you sit and listen to someone like that, you just got to listen to someone like that. You don't have really nothing else to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just sit in the presence of someone who's willing to do that and just let the Lord convict you and minister to you <laughs> through that person. He's coming in, in uh, July. Is it June or July? Robert, come on, you got the calendar. I think it's July. He's going to come do a whole series on apologetics uh, to Islam. He's uh, pursuing a PhD on uh, uh, textual criticism of the Quran. Uh, we're really, really blessed to have this guy. I can't tell you how blessed we are. He is not only fluent in Arabic, he's fluent in Quranic Arabic, which is like the percentage of Muslims that can do that is astronomically low. So we are really, really fortunate to have this guy coming. Anyway, let's move on. We've got a couple minutes. He says, so then, do not be foolish. Notice that belongs to, the, to a, a foolish way of thinking. So if we're not walking circumspectly, if we're not walking in spiritual vigilance, we're foolish. We, he says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Notice, notice that, right? That dissipation language, excess dissipation, right? Whatever you want to say. Um, that fits very nicely into our antinomian heresy, right? Which is excess, dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so instead of being overcome and controlled by a substance like wine, 
that can have adverse effects upon your thinking and your discernment abilities. Instead of that, be over, over, uh, uh, be filled with and be controlled by the, the principles of the Spirit. That's what he's saying. Be filled with the Spirit. Notice that too, guys. Uh, I mean, in one sense, we can ask the question, don't they already have the Spirit? Yes. But now he's telling them, be filled. And the, 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 the grammar here is present active. Be continually filled with the Spirit. And so there's a lot of debate on what that is even talking about, right? And so immediately, charismatic theology will, will tell you, oh, that's talking about speaking tongues, right? And that's like a go-to verse for speaking in tongues. I don't think it means that at all. I think it's sort of uh, parallel to what you find in Galatians chapter 5 in having the fruit of the Spirit, it just means be led and be filled and be flourishing in the resources of the Spirit of God in your life, right? It's not, again, it's not some subjective notion, some mystical experience that only a few people maybe have in the church. No, no, it's choosing to walk by revealed truth. That's what the Spirit loves to bless. Anyway. Mm. Correct. That's right. And what is a characteristic of being filled by the Spirit? Well, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody uh, uh, with your heart to the Lord. By the way, that making melody, that's an interesting word because it literally means to pluck a string. And so some people would say, like, that's a good um, that's a good um, argument for instruments in the early church. You know, I don't, yeah. We don't have that debate here, so good. <laughs> sure. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that is sort of bound to the messianic signs of Christ, right? That his whole ministry from start to finish was going to be characterized by the eschatological spirit of God that would be upon him. And I think the spirit would accompany his ministry from beginning to end. And so these are kind of like four, kind of like four shocks of the spirit's work in the life of Christ. And so certainly I think those are very unique works of the spirit you know and redemptive history uh, i don't think we should go around expecting the spirit to fill any babies any mother's wombs today you know I mean, type of thing just because it describes the, the the spirit's phenomenon there with john the baptist that's certainly not a prescription for us today to follow i think it definitely is part of jesus messianic signs that's what i would say i don't know check the commentaries anybody else anything else yes yes ma'am
Amen to that. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Uh, I like that because it's in a, and it's, it's like an objective standard versus a subjective standard, right? Um, I, I think that's, that's because I like that because, you know, not to harp on charismatic theology so much, but it's just, I want everyone to benefit from it. You know what I mean? But if it's only just a few of us that are maybe gifted, let's say with a spiritual gift or something, right? Then what does this have to do with us, right? Maybe we're not, you know, even claiming to have, I mean, even in a charismatic church, not everybody has the spiritual gifts that are, you know, always glorified, you know, tongues, prophecy, stuff like that. But this is telling us that what the spirit produces in our lives is a principled life of obedience. Yes, sir. I just wanted to say one last thing on yeah. that topic because when it says, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, I, I mean, to me, it just seems clear what the result of being filled with the Spirit produces mm-hmm. just an excess of fruit mm-hmm. uh, and, and holiness and righteousness with mm-hmm. your brethren and, and mm-hmm. how you should treat one another. Yeah, one another theology. Huh? One another exactly. theology, yeah. Exactly. So, so that edifies, that builds up. Correct. Not this. Correct. Not antinomianism. Correct. And, and not, not some, uh, you know, charismata experience. Uh, not here. But, but, uh, but certainly... Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and if we look at the drunk parallel, right? Don't get drunk. Obviously, he's using that because it's a good analogy to what he's looking at. It's not, it's not don't get drunk in the spirit, you know, the whole getting drunk and, you know, the whole wacky stuff, you know, you see on YouTube. But, but what, but what he's saying is that there's a controlling principle, just like, just like a substance like alcohol can control the individual, right? So too, we should be so dominated by the spirit that the spirit is controlling our lives by the way that we reflect the standards of a spirit-filled life, you know, and the, and the ethics of the spirit. That's why I went to Galatians chapter 5, because the fruit of the spirit is exactly what he's talking about here. So, all right, we are dangerously close to being late, so let's, let's, uh, let's go to worship.